Oh, what's the curiosity project? What are the three things you value most in life? Well, that's a, that's a very easy question. <laughs> no, uh, one of them would certainly have to be creativity, just like the act of it. Personally, the, what it brings to life and as a way of connecting and expression and communication. And it's just a really important thing in my life. And I got to have it. I got to do it every day in, in different kinds of ways. I don't know. Another would probably be uh, love. You know, I just feel like that is just so essential to being a human and orientation and just it powers us and moves us and it's it's the best way to like understand the world and i don't know this may be like a subset of creativity or maybe a combination of creativity and love i don't know but but like creative rapport um which i guess is sort of like collaboration like the the creative flow moment where you are just jamming with somebody or or multiple somebodies and you're all on the same wavelength and things are just happening in a very organic, beautiful, perfect way, that is the best to me. Tell me a memory which shaped you. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's many different memories, but thinking of one that was really important to me, informative as a as an artist, as a creative person, was in uh, undergrad. And it was an early painting class that I took. We were making big oil paintings. And it could be whatever you wanted type of thing, you know, but you just had to bring in a painting uh, to the critique. You know? So it was like my first critique. And I had made this painting of a, of a guy, just you know, kind of, it was actually from a figure model. It was this nude guy you know, sitting with his hand on his, on his chin. And uh, I had, was really trying to do a good job, make a really good painting. And I had kind of like, thought about it a lot and i was i think i was kind of grappling with the idea of meanings in art or communicating stuff or kind of what art even is or how it exists and i had made this whole story about who this guy was you know what the painting was and all the symbols and stuff that i put in there in a kind of vague way as i was sort of exploring what i was making i took it to class and in the critique it was clear that like none of that came through was irrelevant to the existence of the piece because it, it just I was just immediately like oh you know like it's not just about what I'm putting into it it's also about how what it's coming out from it you know and and how it's perceived and like a, a painting hangs on a wall or a gallery or whatever and someone can walk up to it and and take something from it but I don't know, it was just a valuable lesson that the art is not just about you the, the art is a dialogue with you and or the makers maker makers of the art and the, the people that receive it and and that is like the kind of cornerstone of it in a way that's super important and i, I that was a important really kind of embarrassing and intense critique which was good and it, and it kind of helped me realize like oh you know like this is what's actually happening when i make a painting or whatever what's your favorite color lately i really like teal kind of soft western blue green Tell me in as much detail as you can about something you knew of which once existed and now does not. You know, I, I made a short film in grad school about a uh, chocolific man, uh, this ice mummy that was found in the Italian Alps in the 90s. And uh, he's from like 5,000 years ago, this guy that's dead. I hope he's dead. 
<laughs> yeah, very dead. <laughs> He's mummified, and uh, he had all this accoutrement with him and stuff. It was just, it's just a really interesting um, story. It's, it's called Otzi the Iceman. You can uh, Google him if you want to. But anyway, I made a film about him, and in the process of that, I, I started to try and kind of learn about his experience. And so I started trying to teach myself like flint napping, and I made leather, you know, with like pig brains and smoke and all this stuff. I tried to kind of tap into this experience, this very tactile kind of version of this experience. And in the process of that, I just learned a tiny about bit about flint napping compared to people that do it. It just made me realize like there's so much knowledge about things like making a, a tool from a stone, you know, uh, or just how to like be in a world that is not this world that is like completely lost from us. And we can only just go back and try and piece it together and, 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 and try and practice that kind of stuff to learn it. But it's just really kind of mind-blowing when you realize like how much we know versus how much we may have lost as, as humans over the years. What, if anything, is perfect? Yeah, tough question. I mean, uh, as a designer, it's really hard to uh, ever feel like that you've perfected anything. You always kind of want to go back and make little tweaks or nudge something to the right or the left or slightly change the color or whatever but at some point you just have to kind of stop because you're like as close to it as you can be i think the only things that are can be perfect are things that are fleeting they're things that are like moments that come and go you know like that are improvised or that are just like little gestures or or uh making someone laugh or telling a joke at the perfect time or whatever like those kind of things can be perfect but nothing tangible maybe who is your favorite character from fiction of any kind i think uh maybe that's a that's a tough one not that <laughs> most of these are pretty tough i guess but uh maybe cody from uh visions of cody it's this uh, jack kerouac book he's based off neil cassidy a, a real person so i guess it sort of skirts the line of whether or not it's fiction but it's just such a wild interesting uh, intense vision of a person what fascinates you um, I, I'm a pretty curious person, I think. I think that's definitely a quality that I have. And the things that catch my curiosity are things that change my perception of reality or take me to some other place or uh, somehow kind of break the rule, you know, something like that. What other job would you like to do if you weren't doing this? I don't know. You know, it's an interesting thing because day to day trying to decide like, well, what, what, what should I be doing or what, what makes me happy? You know? And I certainly enjoy the job that I have on Dimension 20 because it's a, a mix of head work, computer work kind of stuff, drawing, and then very physical construction and, and getting my hands dirty and stuff. So something like that. I don't know. I mean, I guess if it could be any job, maybe like some kind of like it seems like not really a job that exists anymore, but like some kind of like explorer or, you know, moving. And so is it like a frontiersman? Maybe so, yeah. What is your most prized physical possession? I don't know. I mean, I don't think I have necessarily one thing uh, that is probably most prized. I would say that uh, most viable to me or prized in like an existential way is just having a knife. I just always have a, a knife or even two knives on me just as a tool, you know, like I just, I use it all the time and especially in my work and just the way that I move through the world. And I feel kind of almost, you know, um, less functional if I don't have some kind of like little pocket knife or something that it makes sense. If you could name a hot sauce, what would you call it and why? If I could name a hot sauce, uh, 
uh, maybe uh, hot shit. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like a give me the hot shit. <laughs> when was the first time that you started making models, and how did you even get into that industry? You know, I, I definitely wasn't professionally making any models until this show, until working on Dimension Twenty. I uh, I, I come from a film and TV background as a production designer uh, mainly and was building it full-size stuff like big sets and props and things like that and, and uh, my learning kind of happened on the fly and I was uh, lucky enough and uh, maybe smart enough to hire people that are more talented than me and make things look cool and uh, and also kind of teach me along the way um, so so it's sort of like been a, an exploration it continues to be you know uh, the thing that I just keep trying to grow and evolve you know how did you get into production design then well I studied uh, art fine art in undergrad and I didn't really want to be a you know like a gallery artist so uh, so I moved to New York and uh, I I was you know a buddy was living up there a couple buddies and I, I worked at this store selling computers I was just kind of trying to figure things out and I heard that there was this thing you could be called a production assistant for TV and film which meant that you like helped them and I didn't even know really what it was but I knew that like that sounded better than selling computers so I just just hustled and asked a bunch of people on the internet if I could work for free and all this sort of thing and it was awesome and after like a month or two of that kind of stuff I was getting calls and having to turn down work and um, and I was like oh this is this film production is so awesome it's this collaborative creative like clandestine thing where you're working behind the scenes to make this thing all together that you know no one who's not really there or understands how it works would even be able to kind of appreciate or understand what is happening but you know you're working these long hours and doing all this crazy stuff i just liked it right away and um and then i gravitated towards you know the art department side of stuff because you know i have a background in visual arts and um and also kind of in construction, you know, so I, I got into set building and I uh, joined the union as a carpenter, moved back to Texas. And, and then I just started production designing. I started um, making things with friends and uh, small projects. And so I, I've worked in film, I think, for maybe 15 years or so now, just about. What would the first day on a job of a set designer production assistant actually be? Is it like attuning costumes? Is it making sure sets are orchestrated the correct way? Uh, Anytime any production happens, whether it's a, a commercial or a music video or a feature film or a TV show or whatever, it's like this kind of um, miraculous symphony that uh, happens. So like, and it only happens for this short period of time. It costs a lot of money and it involves a lot of people that are very skilled. And so it's like this orchestration of having all these things together in this one place and they all know what the plan is and they've all prepared and they brought all the stuff they need, the costumes and the props and the cameras and the lenses and the lights and they pull it all together in this short time frame and, and make this thing. That's kind of how filmmaking works. And if you're a production assistant, you're kind of like, like a little Swiss army knife that yours used to kind of fill the gaps and fix problems and help the other people. So, you know, I think my first day on that job, you know, as a production assistant, and I think I, I showed up really early in the morning, like 5 a.m. at a park in New York City. And there was a big motor home where the production office was. And they gave me $300 cash, and I didn't, which was petty cash, but I didn't really understand at the time. But then it's like, you know, they're like, go buy this, you know. And so you, you, you hustle off and you got to go buy this thing and get the receipt and come back. And then they need it. And then they're like, go 
fill that ice chest up with water and go, you know, help them with this thing or whatever. So you're, you're just kind of like doing all the, all the small tasks that also kind of make a production happen. And, uh, and you're also getting to kind of see what's going on. What was the process behind going from being this Swiss army knife of making a set functional and being the glue that ties all of these creative people together to, we need you to make tiny miniature scale monsters that are going to be on camera and need to not only reflect light correctly, which I think is an underrated part of, like they, they can't have like matte paint or anything like that. I've tried filming miniatures and putting them online before. That's difficult. How did that happen? How did that process of going from this production, uh, production design to miniatures? Well, you know, I, I met with College Humor at the very beginning of Dimension 20 when they, they were still kind of figuring out what the show was, which was really exciting because I was kind of involved in, in that process a bit and got to contribute and stuff. You know, they knew that there was, a, was going to be an actual play D&D show and there would be, need to be a set and, and there, we could have some kind of miniatures, but it really wasn't focused around the miniatures at first. And so I kind of, I kind of backdoored my way in because I was, you know, brought on to help them design and build a, a full-scale set which we went through a couple of really different iterations. And then we started talking about miniatures and, and I had recently got back into playing D and D and playing with miniatures and stuff. And so we did some test shoots and test games where we were trying to decide what the miniatures was going to be, how involved it would be and all this kind of stuff. And I brought in a bunch of borrowed stuff from this game shop in Santa Monica that I uh, went to a lot and we did like a whole test shoot of of the miniatures and like moving cameras through them and and then we were like this is really cool we should really lean into the miniature side of it so then i just had to get really good at, at that miniature stuff you know because uh because i i knew that it was it was it was i was already really excited about it and whatever but that's sort of what a production designer does anyway is that you have to sort of become an expert in whatever field it is that your show is about. If your show is about dog shows, you know, and you're designing a, a movie about dog shows, then you, you've got to know a lot about dog shows to be able to, to do a good job designing it. So it's sort of part of, of being a production designer is kind of steeping yourself in whatever world and sort of morphing into that, being an expert in that area to be able to, to do it. What was your first encounter with D&D? I think my first encounter with D&D, I was a kid, probably grade school kid. And I think, I don't know if I saw it somewhere or something, but I, you know, I asked my mom if we could get this Dungeons and Dragons game. And she was like, you know, I mean, I grew up in rural Texas and uh, she was like, Oh no, you're not playing Dungeons and Dragons. Uh-uh, you know, like like uh I think it was like post-satanic panic and, and you know, not that we were like super religious, just kind of fearful type of thing that was the reaction. So so then D and D became like a forbidden fruit for me, uh, that I wasn't allowed to play. And uh, we did play we did get the Marvel superheroes uh role playing game, which is pretty cool. I played that with my brother. And then in um in high school art class, one of my friends had the Dark Sun box set. And so uh, he brought like this binder in that had like all the stuff from there and uh in art class I would voraciously read. It was just so neat and cool and uh in, in college I got to play uh in my dorm, I got to play a, um, in a really epic second edition game, you know, where we stayed up all night and all this stuff. It was, it was a lot of fun. And so that kind of sealed the deal for me. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And uh, I was in. And then uh, for a long time, I, I kind of fell out of playing D&D &D, uh, or just playing any role-playing games um, just between 
work and other things. And, and then, you know, I, I always, even though I wasn't, I didn't play kind of a lot of my friends weren't really into tabletop role-playing games, but I was like still buying the books and reading them alone, you know? And uh, eventually I even, I was, I think pretty early on, I was like trying to find actual play audio like before even there was like podcasts i remember like trying to search the internet like where can i listen to people playing D because i'm just so thirsty <laughs> to <laughs> to connect to that and uh anyway i i got back into it kind of a little after 5e came out and uh i started playing again and i, I ran a, a number of campaigns and now i i play online <clears throat> in a patreon Dark Sun 5e game. Uh, so I'm kind of living my best life getting to play this uh, game that that I discovered in high school. And uh, and then I also, I really like the Zweihander system. And so I I run a couple of Zweihander um, campaigns for friends and family and stuff. It was just like this really amazing fantasy world that had all these like organized and systematic kind of details and things, but I had no clue of like how DD actually worked or anything. It's it's, yeah. it's cool. Like the books themselves are just cool manifestations of some kind of you know type of creativity that is cool, unique. You can tell that there's a lot of passion gone into the. Like I remember um, when I was reading Planescape for the first time, seeing all these different worlds uh, lined up, and I was like, I wonder, did they ever write any books in here? And I used to write my own stories set in this world, and I didn't even know it was D and D. And I was just like, yeah, this is awesome. What was the first miniature that you had to design for Dimension 20? Yeah, so kind of the first season. I mean, you know, for, for me, like, I, I pretty much do all of my work before they even shoot the show. So I, I know what all the battles are. I know what all the monsters and all this stuff. So it all happens ahead of time. And uh, so, you know, I, I get like, a, or I build like a whole, you know, list and um, of all the things we're going to have to create. So for the first season of, of Dimension 20 Fantasy High, you know, that, that was kind of, you know, you see there all the things that we had to figure out. And our kind of um, mantra has always been like, whatever gets the job done, because Brennan and the cast are always throwing such things that are so delightfully like outside the kind of like D&D norm. It's kind of like a hallmark of the show that um, it's a real challenge to manifest a mini for whatever it is, you know? And so in that first season, we just, it, it was kind of exploring what all the options were first and then, and then trying to figure out what is the best way to accomplish um, whatever uh, task or whatever miniature build. Um, so you know, really clearly, really quickly, it was like, okay, we can use Hero Forge, which is fantastic to um, create minis. Uh, and uh, we have a, a local person in uh, LA that uh, prints them for us really fast and high quality that we work with. So that can do a lot of things. And then, um, you know, another aspect is um, just kind of brute force uh, looking online through catalogs of miniatures just trying to see what's available because there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of different miniatures out there. And there might be the, just the perfect one, you know, which is great for us because it's cost effective and it's, it's, it's already done more times than not. I'm looking for like pieces like, Oh, that little head, I can take that and cut it off and attach it to this body. And then we can put the legs of this other one on there. And so a lot of kit bashing, 
Yeah, so for the people who wouldn't be aware of what kit bashing is, what is kit bashing? Mm -hmm. Kit bashing is when you combine two or more models or miniatures together to kind of create something new. Um, and a perfect example would be, and this is a spoiler for the first season of, of Fantasy High, but at one point they fight um, some skater dwarves. And so, you know, in as far as miniatures that exist out there, there are not skater dwarves that I I'm shocked. There may be now, or there may have been some I just missed, but I couldn't find them. But what I did find was skaters. They're like little kids, you know, that are first, they're kind of modern contemporary uh, era kids on skateboards. And we found some, you know, some, there's plenty of dwarves. So we had dwarves for like the arms and the shields and swords and things like that. And then um, I got some caveman uh, heads that had these kind of big bearded uh, heads. Um, and so we cut those pieces apart, cut the heads off of this, the body off of that, cut the knees off the legs, et cetera, and, and then glue them all together and paint, paint them up and make a new miniature that, um, that you know, is what we want it to be. What is the fastest turnaround in any miniatures that you've had to make? Because I know on the show, as the cast kind of bounces ideas off one another and prepare to encounter things, have you ever had to like last minute, oh, we're just going to we'll have to make this because this is cool? Yeah, um, because we do most of our work ahead of time, we, we don't. Um, and all, a lot of time like the, they're shooting back to back episodes on the same day or even three episodes on a day. Or sometimes it's like three episodes one day, three episodes the next day, which is very, very little time for us to produce something. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, in... Um, in season one, famously, like uh, uh, Fabian um, uh, catches this uh, motorcycle or, or captures, dominates, whatever, he takes possession of this motorcycle. So now he's got a motorcycle and then, you know, uh, Brennan is like, after the, you know, I'm, I'm watching them tape it anyways. Like, oh man, we need a motorcycle mini. And then, of course, Brennan comes up and is like, hey, we need a motorcycle mini. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> but we also need a, need a mini with him on the motorcycle and we need him many of the motorcycle by itself is like, oh yeah you know so, so that's too many and um so so then you know that one i think we did it in like two days or three days or something it was a hero forge mini with some kit bashing the fastest though is probably in uh in tiny heist there's a i think she's kind of like the love interest of um the main villain and her name is uh minetta i think so we, we never created a mini for her because, you know, we, can, we can't create minis for everything. And so we kind of have to make tough, tough decisions with budget and stuff being like, well, which ones will we make? And so we just say, well, I don't think she's going to actually be any battles. We can get away with not, not making a mini for her. But then it became clear, you know, while we were taping that, like, oh, we really should have a Minetta um, mini. And um, uh, that was one of those, the tiny high season was taped over two days, like, all six episodes of stage over two days one weekend and um you know it was like midday so i'm like okay i'm calling you know my crew like i gotta send somebody out to i, I had to find a ballerina like toy ballerina thing send someone out to pick it up bring it right back to the shop then we had to like paint it touch it up make some changes put it on the base bring it in you know and so it, it just barely uh made it in time but that was that was pretty quick that was like a same day turnaround so with each season of Dimension 20, the ideas and concepts that the show deals with kind of grow in scale, especially with this current season of Crown of Candy. You've got like this essentially fantasy fantasy 
almost. So the players are looking at, at this world so like richly constructed. And when you're planning out each season, are you cognizant that things are getting bigger? And is that an like is that an intentional choice, or is it just that you feel more comfortable in these bigger spaces now? I think it's probably both. You know, I mean, um, we certainly are are getting. Uh, better at what we do and you know it's just like anything else like I, th- I feel like everything is about figuring out tricks that you can put in your little toolbox and then it's you know so one time you have an issue where you're trying to figure out um skater dwarves and then the next time you encounter something like that you're like oh we could use the skater dwarf trick that we did or or we could you know whatever so so you get faster and and more efficient and and better at it and um and of course you know we're always trying to i think that's kind of a hallmark of d20 uh is that we're always kind of trying to build on what we did or one up what we've done um you know uh just even with like concepts for the battles um but it's certainly with the visual scope of it and also it goes to the the world that it is you know that that particular world feels like it has this kind of implied scope which is to say all of the food groups. <laughs> and so and so you immediately want to represent all of those in some way, you know, so that you can sort of like, be like oh yeah, that's what the bread world looks like. And that's what this looks like. Yeah, so I don't know, I, I kind of, I guess all of those reasons. Two questions. Do you put Easter eggs in your sets and models? And what is your favorite Easter egg that you've put in, if so? You know, probably the the uh, the model makers put in more Easter eggs than I do, just because they they're kind of the feet on the ground, uh, you know. And and I have a a lot of other things on my plate usually, but yeah, we always try to. Uh, I think one of them is uh, in every season they used a an actual like plastic egg shape as like a as like a structural element for something. I have to ask them, but and I don't think that one's ever been brought up. But uh, I think in each of the seasons, there's some, whether it's like a small like plastic egg or like a big half egg shape. And uh, I know in like season one, you know, kind of keeping with like the high school juvenile humor aesthetic, we, we had we put a lot of like dicks in. <laughs> So there's like, you know, places where it's like, hey, that looks like a dick. Awesome. You know, perfect. But yeah, I mean, you know, we're having fun when we're making this stuff. And sometimes things, I mean, sometimes we, we'll see, we'll come up with something. And it's like, oh, this is great. And it's like, oh, it's, it's, it's going to be too distracting. You know, uh, it's kind of a lesson we learned um, is that, you know, you, we, the set and the minis are actually a active participant in the in the improvisation that's happening with with that the cast and it it, the set is telling the cast stuff and everything that's in there has to be thought of in that light you know because you don't want to um reveal anything like where a secret door is or whatever or or you know you it's it's got to be really thoughtfully looked at as to how and what exactly it is telling the cast. So, you know, you have to be careful about what superfluous things you put in there. You seem to enjoy from the descriptions making this stuff and making all of this happen. And the cast enjoys playing D&D. Brennan enjoys dungeon mastering. And the people who are watching enjoy watching all of that happen. So what is this thing we call fun? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. It's interesting too that uh, each one of those things that you brought up are are actually different uh, 
manifestations or instances of of the show you know what i mean like me and brennan and the producers sitting in a room coming up with ideas for battles and laughing about stuff whatever that is and then and then us um that's one time that it exists and then us like you know physically building these things in the shop and they exist for us in this world which is based on what has already been discussed that's a that's a, a moment it exists that it, it is enjoyed and then it goes and um is in the actual taping of the show where there's so much additional things added to it and things are even things that we designed to be a certain way they they end up being uh used or defined a different way and there's a whole other level of uh layer where it exists and then it's actually goes through post right so they're putting sound effects and other things that, and, and the editors and the post team is having fun kind of taking what's there and, and lifting up another layer and then it, and then people watch it right and then and they're interacting and and jamming about it and making art and stories and whatever and it exists on a i guess that's probably the final uh, time that it exists. Um, but anyway, it's just kind of interesting to say, I don't know what fun is, but it's interesting that you brought up that, um, that each one of those is like a, a different time that it, fun is had in the creation and enjoyment of the show. So then is fun a process that perhaps from the very beginning with the intent of making something, you begin to enjoy it. And through that enjoyment, you give cues to the next person, like a wave, uh, to continuously expand, expand that fun. Because each person who watches Dimension 20 as well, it gets, I think it would even go a level of abstraction higher. And that each person who enjoys Dimension 20 will do so for a different reason, will have fun for a different reason. Well, it, so, it exists for them almost as a, it exists for each viewer almost as a, as a parallel universe in a way, kind of where it's, they're having their own you know uh ships and whatever uh you know um yeah i don't know i think you're right i think that it that there is something to that it's like a it's like a collaboration it's a it's a each time and there's a little dialogue or a little dialectical communication happening yeah 